welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, church, why don't you stand with me? We're going uh, to read the word together, as is our custom here in King's Church. We, we stand because we are honoring God's word, and it's a reminder for us to say God's word is really important, and I am using it to establish my life, the boundaries, the directives, all of those things, not great ideas, not really cool um, New York Times seller books, which are helpful. We're actually using the Word of God to establish everything we do and using it actually to analyze everything in the world around us. That's why we stand up because it's important. Amen? All right, everybody with me here, starting in verse 12. Let's do it. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would um, feed us this morning, God. Thank you that you gave your word and um, to us, Lord, that it would be life inside of us, that this living and active word of God would be inside of us reverberating with life and that from it would produce life in our bones and health and strength and sustenance that we could grow as sons and daughters, God, as glorious ones, fathers, reflecting the image of Jesus Christ on the earth, not emaciated, pathetic, scrapping by, desperately hoping to get to heaven, but sons and daughters that are reflecting the image and likeness of a good father in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Be seated. Thank you, Heidi, for the synth. Heidi on the synth. Heidi on the synth. Change it up on you. I tricked you. You expected keys, and I tricked you. Sorry. All right. So we've been preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And as happens when you're going through something like this and you have both the desire as a pastor to teach your people the word of God line by line and say this is what God's word says, this is how his way works, and this is the way we ought to live life. You, you do that and then you also hit cultural issues. And especially right now in our culture where we have a time of significant shaking, we have unprecedented political acts um, by city, state, and government officials that are significantly impacting our lives and the lives of our churches. We're kind of, you know, we're doing line by line through the scripture talking about God's way, but I'm also using it a little bit as a, as a springboard to jump into some of the cultural issues of our day. 
Um, and I'll do that a little bit here today. Last week we talked about an end times, and it freaked some people out, and which I love. I love to freak people out. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do. We were talking about the mark of the beast. We were saying, what is this mark of the beast? And we were talking about, um, in, the, in the book of Revelation, all the theologians have told us, and the scripture seems to indicate that the beast represents government. And people had been asking me consistently, you know, is, is this shot a mark or the mark of the beast? And I said, well, it's not the mark of the beast. Um, it is not the end of the world, but it is a end of a world. It is a end of a time. It is, these are indicators that a time is ending where you have a government entity that has so much power and authority that you can't do anything. That's why the mark is on the hand. You can't do anything without it's okay. And then on the head, you can't think anything without being okayed by this beast, this entity that is of power. And when that happens, the issue for Christians is it's really hard to practice Christianity. That's actually the issue. The issue is not a needle or not a needle. The issue is none of those things. The issue is when a government entity becomes so strong and is promoting not just secularism, but is promoting morality that is converse, uh, contradictory towards the kingdom of God, we have a serious problem. We have a serious problem. And I don't know if you remember this, but every secular government that goes whole hog secular does away with Christianity, uh, abolishes the Bible, it starts outlawing Christians, and then, you know, eventually executing them. I, you, you can't start a church in North Korea. Do you know that? It doesn't work. It doesn't work super well. They execute you immediately there. And we don't want to say every situation is like, oh my God, you know, they raise taxes. What is this, North Korea? Oh my God, it's North Korea again, you know. It's ridiculous to say that. But it's not ridiculous to see human behavior on a spectrum because human behavior is on a spectrum, right? And one generation that holds the fence and the borders and the guidelines at a certain place, the next generation comes up and says, like, I don't really understand why there are these borders and these guidelines. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about um, language in, in, in our night services. We have a 6 o'clock service, and we do a separate subject matter. And I was talking about uh, how most of my friends growing up in church, they really don't care about language. They don't, there's, there's quite a few scriptures that, that says don't use filthy language, don't let anything unclean come, in your, come out of your mouth. But me growing up in church, it just wasn't cool. Like, we didn't understand it. There was no point to it. And now that I'm older, I recognize language as an initial border to protect the thing it's supposed to protect. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, we use language and certain words that we, that we prohibit, and the prohibition of those words create a border. And so you, most of our curse words, whether you know this or, or not, have sexual connotations. And those connotations are related to us as a culture understanding we're trying to protect sexuality out of the bounds that it's supposed to be placed in. Because once we start to be loose with our language and not care what we say, then we start to not care so much about what we do. And saying and doing are intimately correlated. And so you have a time in culture where saying, oh my God, was, a really, was seriously taking the Lord's name in vain. I would be surprised if there was like 10% of our church that even thinks that's a big deal at all. The point is, there was a time where people thought God was real. And then if you mess with him, there was a very bad place you might end up. And so taking liberties with his name was a bad idea. And a whole entire culture at one time believed that. 
and their belief was manifest in their very language and the way they understood the world around them and those boundaries and those borders that seem like they don't really seem that important to you or me and this is not a cursing message this is a message about the spectrum of culture that degrades over time when sons and daughters start to dishonor the, the, the legacy of father and mother. And we'll see here that one of the crazy things about King David is he doesn't do that. But let me hit this first scripture. It says, now David was the son of this guy named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah, and Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. So Jesse, the father, was a really old guy, not just a regular older dad, but a very old dad. The scripture takes time to emphasize this. And Jesse has seven sons, and David is the eighth son. We know biblically that represents David coming in as this, you have seven days in the week, and the eighth day is the new day, the new week. And David's representing this kind of new son that loves the Lord with all his heart, and God's going to call and use. It's kind of a picture of Christ in a way that, that through the Old Testament, this model was given that didn't work. It was a model of striving. It was a model of the old son. It was a model of the earth. And Jesus came and inaugurated a brand new way. He was the new son, the second Adam, the scripture calls him. Well, check this out. Um, David's name, which I love as this new son, his name means the beloved one, or David means beloved. And that's my name, happens to be my name. It's not the meaning I would have preferred. I would have preferred lion murderer or something like that, you know, throat chewer honor of death times. Um, but I got beloved. That's what the Lord saw fit to give to me. Uh, but the beautiful thing is that in Christ, in this new Adam, in, in, in the new son, that we are called the beloved of God. That it's not just a single son, it's not just David, and it's not just Jesus himself, but it's that you and me become the beloved of a father. Psalm 65, Psalm 60, verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. There's only, in the New Testament, it calls believers the beloved a bazillion times. In the Old Testament, two or three times in totality, do you see any writer of any book calling a person of the Old Covenant beloved? But David saw something different. David, who was beloved of God, saw God as someone who loved his sons and daughters. And so in the Psalms, and it's echoed, this same exact scripture is echoed in two different chapters of the Psalms where David says that your beloved ones may be delivered. You know, I, I said during worship that it, I had a sense that there's those of us dealing with depression or frustration or struggle. You know, if you have a, a father that, that you're the beloved kid, like, you're going to be okay. You have your car broke down or you have a job freak out. But if you have a father that has the power and ability and you're the beloved child, you're going to be a-okay. Right? This is not a license to sin. This is a license to look at God as someone who looks at you like you're the beloved. And then, so David gets a glimpse of this revelation. And then look how Paul uses the term in the book of Romans. Among you, Romans chapter 1, whom are called of Jesus Christ, 
to all of those in Rome, beloved of God, the saints. So instead of one individual getting a singular revelation that God loves him, Paul is saying to all of you saints in Rome, every one of you are the beloved of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No longer are you the striving son. No longer are you the second-class citizen. Now you're the favorite of God inside of the plan and purpose of God. And this is a cool picture of David here. It says in verse 13, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war, and their firstborn, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, David was the youngest, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father at Bethlehem. If you remember a few weeks back, we said this is what happened to David. He got called up by Saul, so he was literally in the courts of the king playing music for Saul. Imagine what that would be like in our modern kind of expression. It would be like being in the White House. It's like you get to come and hang out in the White House, and you get to stay here and do whatever. This is the leader of their nation that David is ministering to. But David doesn't stay there. He goes back and forth to honor his father and work with the sheep. It feels like so many young people are gunning to get to a place of position and they're so happy to kick the dust of their small town or their small place off their feet. It's the opposite of God's way. And it's the New York City life. I mean, I, I, I was a whole, my whole life I dreamed about moving to New York City. I lived in a town, my dad pastors in a town of 600 people in upstate New York. Literally, there's more people in this building than there is in like a 30-mile radius to where I grew up. And um, I, my whole life, wanted to kick the dust of that town off of my feet and, ex and, and launch out into the greater and the bigger and the shinier. And the older I get, the more I realize the drive of the enemy to, to place a wedge between son and father, mother and daughter, home and work. The places that we're supposed to be intimately connected that build real strength for a culture or a community or a nation and we separate them and, and our movies glorify them and our movies are Luke Skywalker, he lives in the dark stupid little town, he works for his stupid idiot uncle and they're about to get lasered anyway. <laughs> And then he finally will escape one day from the clutches of smallness to the empire, to fighting Darth Vader and winning the championship. I just don't think that's the value of, in the kingdom of God. I was, I've been writing this book, Good Kills, and I've been writing about a hierarchy of order in the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, if you're God and you're like, I gotta put the most important commandment first, et cetera, et cetera, First commandment is, you know, that we, love, that we love the Lord God our whole heart, have no idols before him. We work our way down to the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment is, who knows it? Raise your hand if you know it. Yeah, yes, yes, I knew you would know it. Um, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. And I was thinking about this. The fifth commandment is before don't murder people. The fifth commandment of honoring father and mother if the, if the Ten Commandments are, are hierarchical in order, and you may disagree with that, that's fine, but if they are hierarchical in order, don't murder people is less important than the unity of family, than the commitment and love to mother and father. And it's not just like this, like, showing up for Sunday dinner and, and stuffing your face full of meatballs. Like, that's maybe important in your culture. 
But there's also a commitment to family that when we're passed down from our fathers and our mothers spiritually, a set of boundaries and order that we don't just throw them all in the garbage and say, nah, we don't need any of that. Honoring father and mother is more than like calling your parent at the old folks' home once a month, which actually, if you were to ask me about it, I believe is one of the signs of degeneracy of our culture and actually the destruction of our culture. When you take these people that are incredibly valuable and you lock them in a room for the next 10 years until they die from loneliness and bed sores, it's not really how we should treat our mothers and fathers. And look, I get it, you know, I get it. We have family members, well, I don't have family members, but I know people that have family members that are like, I can't do it, I can't take care of them, fine. My mother-in-law, because she's such an insane hero, she took the last six years of her life, seven years of her life, eight years of her life, and she cared for her 97-year-old dad. That's what she did for her full-time life. I promise you there will be no Disney movies in the next decade that are about someone caring for their aging 97-year-old father or mother. But the fifth commandment, and when we break these commandments, we break the foundation of the worlds we live in. And you're like, well, it's like, like, at least we're not murdering people. Well, those come later, right? When, when we're talking about love of nation, which we talk about in, in this church because we love America, and we think God blessed America, we think America is a chosen nation, which is different than the chosen nation. We believe that God chooses peoples, right? and America God chose to uh, release his blessing on. We've had more uh, blessing go to the world, more missionaries go to the world than any other nation in the the history of the world. America has done more for freedom around the nation than any other nation in the history of the world. Uh, We believe that it has a particular call from God. But we don't love America because we love the flag. We don't love America because we, we, um, you know, like the star-spangled banner. We're actually supposed to love our nation because we love our family, because we love our mothers and fathers and our brothers and sisters, and then our neighbors, and then our cities, and then our states, and then our nations. We've we've separated what patriotism even is supposed to be. It's supposed to be, I love my family so much, I'm willing to lay down my life to protect them. And I love my neighbors that much, and I love my city that much. But we don't live that way anymore. We've separated ourselves from family, from mother and father, from this concept of honoring, and it's, 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 it's separated the strength that's supposed to be the substructure of a very culture and society. And so now one of our biggest, like if you, if you decide today I want to start a business and I want to make a lot of money, start an old folks home. It's one of the largest growing sectors of the economy where we kick old people into homes to forget about them because they start to smell when they're old. We all know that. We all know that's true. But so do babies. Babies smell when they're young. Human beings smell when they're young and they're old. It's just what happens. It's how God made it. Deal with it. Sorry. I think, the, I think the heart of David is funny because he's not so committed to the castle, to the kingship, to the glory that he forgets his father, even though his father is very old. And I don't think that you can have a culture that's sustained whether or not you have a move of God or miracles or healing or any of those things if we don't restore the roots of how God told us to function as a society. We can't do it. They're incompatible. My father was, um, 
was, uh, he had a radio show for many years. And he used to interview Christian authors all the time. And in Brownsville in Florida, they had a major revival. Lots of people got healed, lots of angel wings, feathers, gold dust, shotguns, you know, the whole experience. And he talked to the pastor about seven years after the revival, and he said, is your community different in any noticeable way at all? And the pastor said, no, there's nothing. The crime, the crime rate hasn't changed. Families are still disintegrated. The unemployment rate is still exactly the same. And charismatics want to have an experience with God, and they don't realize the experience with God is to restore the foundations that he asked us to walk in. Charismatics want to have some kind of like, God, will you give me some kind of blessing, you know, put the blessing uh, jumper cables on my batteries to get my car started. And God's like, fine, but you're driving in the swamp. And I want you to drive on the, the land I've called you to. We call that the road. Okay. Verse 16, it says this. It says, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. And so David is going out to visit his brothers and they're living under the domination of the, of the giant. We said two weeks ago, the giant is this liar. He's lying about um, what he can do. He's lying about setting up the terms of the battle. He's just, he's just a, a wicked, giant, ugly liar. And we don't like him. And I was reading this, and, I, and it said, For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took a stand. And so when I read the scripture and I see a strange point, factual point, I say, God, what's the purpose of this? So when I see for 40 days the Philistine came forward, I, I look at the scripture and see where there are other 40-day periods of time that are significant. And if you read the scripture, the, the term 40 or 40 days is generally a term of testing and or humiliation. So that you're tested represents a period of tested, testing or a period of humiliation. And if you remember in the scripture, uh, Moses first goes up on the mountain for 40 days and the people are tested and they fail miserably. They start worshiping a golden calf. You remember that? They, they, have, they decide to act sexually um, anarchic and Moses is displeased and trashes them. Um, there's another 40-day test that's actually specifically related to giants, and this place, Moses tells his soldiers, uh, there's a group of guys, 12 of them, and, and Joshua and, and Aaron go as well, not Joshua and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb go, and they go into the promised land, and they, are, they say, they go there for exactly 40 days, and they're like, you know, the majority are like, you know, there's giants in the land, and I think this is not a good idea for us to go. Let's pack up, back to Egypt. We like um, hummus. Let's go back that way. It actually says this in, in um, Numbers 13.33. It says, the people that were terrified say, it said, and there we saw these giants and the sons of Anak who came of giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. It seems to me that this number 40 is significant as related to God 
testing his people and his people standing against giants and that the people of God that don't believe in his word and don't believe in his way and aren't recognizing themselves as the beloved of God, they're people that are easily backed down from the fight that God called them to. And it seems to me that our churches have been in a period of testing and that period of testing culturally has been voices um, that have demanded that we shut our doors, there are voices that have demanded that we limit our numbers, there are voices that demanded that we separate vaccinated from unvaccinated, there are voices that demand that we obey or we subjugate ourselves to a secular system or order, and that there is a testing that the church is going through right now. And, and, and you can see there's still many churches, I'm sure you know, I don't have to tell you their names, that are still closed to, the, to this day. We're, what are we, 18 months into this thing and churches' doors are still closed because the giants that they're facing, they've decided to bow to. They've decided to say, I, you know what, this looks like it's a bad deal. Let's just lay low. Was, I'm reading the history of England before and after John Wesley. Who knows who John Wesley is? Raise your hand. Okay, about half you. John Wesley is this guy, he started the Great Awakening um, in the 1700s, kind of 1740s, 30s, 40s. He was the father of the Methodist movement. And reading about John Wesley and, and England before Wesley came with what, what God brought as a revival that literally changed the face of all of England. Um, Historians say it saved England from a revolution that was like the French Revolution that was brutal and bloody and they really didn't ever come out of it. They said before Wesley, this, the, the culture started to really degenerate quickly. Um, one, in f one in four babies survived by both the poor class and the middle class for two reasons because of how dirty it was, but also because many people would just leave their babies on the streets to die because of sexuality. I said this two weeks ago. If you have a culture that worships sexuality, they will not care for the lives of the small ones. They will see them as a disposable asset or commodity to be disposed of. And so this is what was happening in, in, in England right as Wesley was ari arising. Um, prostitution is rampant. Um, alcoholism is rampant throughout the society. It's so bad that people have a hard time traveling at noon in broad daylight without getting attacked by bandits and robbers. It's so dangerous that all of <laughs> there, there were these ships that, went, that at the time that would travel the coast uh, of the island and look for mariners, excuse me, or, or, or crash ships against the rocks. I don't know what they call it. Maroon, sorry. And um, they had to stop all the ships because the ships that were crashed actually were just large groups of bandits that would murder the people trying to rescue them, save their money, and steal their ships. England was at the brink of absolute moral chaos. Destruction. People having... Sexual relationships in, in the daytime, in the parks, all over the city. You know, it's funny because like for us as believers in the 21st century, it's easy for us to look at our time and say it's the worst it's ever been. It's never been as bad as this. God, is, God could never do anything here. 
And this is the lie of the enemy. He's like, give up, don't worry about it, buy yourself a house out in you know, the Hamptons and hide out there until the end of the world because it is the end of the world. The lie of the enemy says, you can't do anything about this right now. And God sends one man, Jonah, to Nineveh, which is the wickedest city in the world at the time, and one man with a message of repentance changes the entire city in three days. The, the, the message is not simply Jesus loves you. That's not the gospel, right? That's the problem with most of our churches. And that's, that's why it's funny to me that our churches have no, like the vast majority of our churches have no influence at all in what's happening in our country right now. Whether we lock down or not, or any of that stuff, the vast majority of churches are just like, yes, sir, tell me what to do. We'll shut our doors and go away. You know, right before the absolute moral chaos of, of England, one of the things that happened is the, the, there was a war between the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. And part of that war, there was a convocation of Anglican ministers, and they were entirely banned. They banned their meeting together. If, they, if these Anglican ministers met together, they would be arrested and sent to jail. And in this book, it says this is part of the start of the total collapse, moral degeneration of a society. And I'm looking around at the, our country, and I'm seeing the vast majority of churches totally shut down. And I'm saying, <laughs> we think it's bad now. What will it be like in two or three or four years with Delta and Gamma and Beta and whatever variant for the next five years. And they're like, sorry, churches, you can only have three people in a circle and you're not allowed to sing because you may spread the virus. What will our country be like with the, 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 the presence, without the presence of even a mediocre church? I, I, I think, this is my faith hope, my faith hope is it's God poising America for a revival. And, and here's the thing. There, there's a place to which we get where we're still okay and we're still comfortable. There's a place where like, you know, I really don't need to turn to God yet because I haven't hit the threshold of pain in my life. And then when pain sets in, if you, <laughs> if you know God or you had a relationship with God, then he's your last hope, you turn to him. And it's so bizarre, it's so bizarre that God would allow a people to turn to him in the midst of their chaos. But the scripture says, while you were yet a sinner, Christ loved you. While you were in, in, in the depths of your tragedy, Christ cared for you. I, I, I hear in my spirit the Lord saying, there is a, there's 40, like this 40-day period, there is a time of trial and testing that I'm having against the church. And those who have faith that God kills giants through his sons and daughters will find vast and great victory. And those that don't will be stuck in the wilderness like the sons of Israel for an entire generation. And sons and daughters will arise. Their sons and their daughters are the weak leaders that are leading these places. And God, please awaken them. I... I, I love them dearly. Their sons and daughters will arise and look at the world around us and say, you're, you're, not, you're telling us that there's no difference between boys and girls? You're telling us that we have to live underneath this tyrannical rule that we can't go outside without your... your we're living in this crazy dystopia. It's developing a dystopia. 
I, I don't know if you know this, but cultures that demand papers when moving from one place to another place, the only cultures that have done that have been the worst tyrants in the history of mankind. We're talking about Russia, Germany, China. We, we don't, free countries don't do papers to enter a restaurant. We don't do that. These are indicators of tyranny. And the problem with tyranny is when a really bad guy gets on top of a system of tyranny, he can really cause vast pain to the people. When, this, when the system has freedom and checks and balances against power, we kind of pull against each other. But when a, a dictatorship is created by legislation, when a bad guy gets on top of that, then really bad things happen. And that's what happened in um, late 1930s, early 1940s. In Germany, that's how Hitler took over. He, he had his people you know, light their capital buildings on fire. They said there's a national emer emergency. We need total control. National emergency, total control. The people say, fine, take total control. And then you have a, a bad guy running things. And really, frankly, I don't really care that much about that in the sense that um, when a nation rejects God's way, when a nation rejects God's paths, when a nation rejects righteousness, what you reject, on the one hand, you accept a curse, right? You accept destruction. You accept the collapsing of, I'm not saying just your borders physically, I mean your borders spiritually. I mean the spiritual borders are collapsed and the demonic is allowed to, to have a party. And when they have a party, they take a culture to the same place every time, which is moral chaos, economic chaos, families in ruin, babies are uncared for, the most vulnerable, whether old people or really young people, they're not cared for, they're destroyed, and then God is like, man, you better straighten up, kids, because um, it will, it's a long eternity. I want to say something else about humility real quick. Time's, I got a few more minutes. A righteous response in the day of humility brings the favor of the Lord. I'm going to say it again. A righteous response in the day of humility brings the favor of the Lord. The Proverbs says, a good son desires to be chastised by his father. A good son says, please correct me. I don't have it all together. I can't see what I'm doing wrong. So, Father, please correct me. Please speak into my life so I don't have these giant glaring holes. And when the day of humility comes, which is a day of correction, grace by God comes, and God will exalt you if you respond righteously. I'm going to prove it to you. Psalm 138.6, for, for the Lord is high. He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3, 34, it's towards the scorner, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted by the Lord. Luke 1, 52, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Peter 5, this is the classic one most of you know. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is roaring around like a lion. He's walking about seeking whom he may devour. The 
contrast of the picture is this. On the one hand, in this season of humility, the enemy wants to totally consume you. On the other, if you will be humble, the Lord will exalt you out of that place. That's the biblical picture. Even when chaos is reigning, if the church decides, hey, this is a great time to humble ourselves, the Lord will exalt her. Second Chronicles 7 through 11. Solomon had just finished building the house of the Lord, and um, he's preparing it. Well, he's preparing it for a generation or two or three or four to worship God. It's this sovereign moment of time, and God decides to come down and speak to Solomon and really give him the play-by-play for generations rolling out. And he says, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and his own house he prosperously effected. The Lord appears to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If, this, if I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. This is the pattern that God gives Solomon as Solomon has established this temple, this place of communion with God, this place of relationships that's established on earth as a prophetic archetype of Jesus establishing a place for us to commune with God. It says this, if a curse comes, if the curse comes to the land, if I close the sky so that there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send a plague, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will hear, for, hear from heaven, forgive them their sins, and heal, hear their land. Because David is able to walk in humility in a time where the nation is being humiliated by, the, by, by Goliath. He's exalted by the Lord, and he can slay the giants of his time and in his land. I have a lot of friends, and I have pastors that are all over the map. I have, uh, uh, and they have very different views from me than a lot of things. I ha- most of them right now are saying, Jesus is coming back. Don't you see how bad it is? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Any, any second now, he's going to come. And I just keep thinking, but I have a whole city to save. Uh, there's a whole nation to be re- redeemed and restored and turned back to Jesus. And instead of saying, yep. It's, it, it, you're right, it's dark. If the church as a whole can humble themselves and pray and turn to God and say, Lord, the government is not our savior. God, our economy is not our savior. Our wallet is not our savior. Like whether we're rich or poor, that's not our savior. God, you're our savior. And if I humble myself before you in a time of national opposition, it's a time like this where God chooses individuals to exalt and churches and people. I've been saying this to friends. Last summer, I really distinctly felt like I heard the Lord said, or say to me in a prayer time, I'm redividing the land and I'm giving it to those who will be bold in this season. Those who will not stand for me in this season, those who cave in, they will lose their land, they will lose their inheritance, and I will give it to those who are bold. 
and it's because God desperately wants to call back sons and daughters in a nation that has turned away from him back to his heart. You know, there's this, um, there's this guy named Achan, and I'm going to close on this. Uh, he's, the Israelites, are, they, they, they come into, we just talked about Jericho early. They, they do this battle of Jericho, and they say, all the plunder, we're, gonna, we're not going to take any of it. This is all belongs to God. Don't touch the plunder. And this guy, Achan, is an idiot. And he defiles the first battle, and he steals the silver and the gold and the stuff, and he hides it in his tent. And they cast lots, they find out it's him, and the community executes this guy. It's this incredibly shameful act, because this place where God had brought the people of Israel into their promise, given them this incredible, miraculous victory, Achan defiled it by making it all about himself. And not trusting God, right? Hosea has this really incredible scripture. And it says this in verse, chapter 2, verse 13, about this. He's talking about the, uh, the nation of Israel, which is a foreshadowing of the church. Um, it says, I will punish her for, her for the feast days and the bales when she burned offerings to them and endured herself with ring jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. He's saying, the, the, the chapter is like, it's almost spinning towards this apex of just calamity that, this, that, that the nation of Israel is in, and they've, how they've turned away from God. And then here in verse 14, the whole narrative switch and it says therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope the valley of Achor is named after Achan it's where Achan was stoned it was where this act happened that defiled the entire people of God and God says even in this place of the, the ugliness like maximal ugliness I will create a door of hope and again call you my beloved. And the gospel is this message that's so incredibly profound. It's to say to a nation, reckon that you have left the foundations. Repent and turn to a God that calls you his beloved and has offered a door of hope to you. And reading John Wesley and seeing how they changed John Wesley, his compatriots, this movement changed the entire nation of England when it seemed like it would be utterly doomed for all of time. It was by the gospel of Jesus Christ that called men to repent and believe in this unbelievably extravagant love of God. And then once they got a hold of it, they began to say, God, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. What can I do for you? They didn't say, God, I'm so grateful that you've, you've saved me. Now let's hole out until Jesus returns. They didn't say, let's, let's, get some, let's get some food and hide in a bunker until Jesus comes back. They say, God, you've been so unbelievably good to me, me who threw my parents in the old folks' home, me who acted like the harlot, me who turned from your ways. You opened a door of hope for me. God, let me give all of my life to you. And in that spirit, there was a revolution in England, and the entire nation was changed. And I believe it can happen. I don't know how to make it happen. I, don't, I think God makes it happen. But I know part of the way to make it happen is to pray and preach repentance and restoration to God. I don't totally get repentance completely. I don't totally understand it. I, I feel like it's, I'm grasping at it. 
And I was reading John Wesley, and John Wesley was in this moment of his life. And dear, you can come up. And he went to Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, to go save the Indians in his own language. He actually was going to minister to the colonists and to the Indians. He was there, and there was this, he's on his way there, and there's this massive storm, and there's lightning and thunder, and it's crashing all around him. And he's terrified he's going to die. He's in the boat with these Moravians, and the Moravians really have a, a, a super intimate prayer life with the Lord. They know they're beloved of God. And they're totally at peace. And Wesley is like, why are you not scared? We're, you're going to die right here. And they say, because God loves us, and we're going to go to heaven and be with him. We're not scared of death. Why do you think we're leaving Britain to go to the colonies? We're not, we're not scared of it. And Wesley realized deep inside of him that he didn't know if he was even saved. He was, the, he was like top of his class theologian. His mom made him memorize Greek and Latin, huge swaths of scripture, and he's there on the boat and there in the colony, and he doesn't even know if he's saved. And he comes back to England, and he says, I went to save the Indians, but oh God, who will save me? I think it's incredible. I think it's incredible to have the lucidity to have the ability to look at your heart and say, God, am I even right with you? God, do I even recognize the places where I have thrown off your covenant, that I have, I have crashed the foundations that you have given me, that I'm standing on rubble and making more rubble? God, would you give me a spirit of repentance to turn towards your way, that I could enter into that door of Achor where through, in the midst of my tragedy, in the midst of my chaos, there's a door that's open where you call me the beloved. And just stand with me, church. Father, we thank you that through Jesus and his sacrifice that you call us the beloved and that you call us out of the crumbling. God, and that you've, you've called a church here in Manhattan Father, in a city where people say is the farthest left, is the closest to hell, is the most forgotten, God, that there's a place, Father, where there's a door of acor, a door of hope that you've called sons and daughters to walk in, God, that have turned away from darkness, God, and are turning towards your marvelous light. Father, I just ask that this morning, Father, that we wouldn't hear the voice of the giant that says, back off slow it down, hide out, run away. But we would hear the voice of one who's beloved, whose father delivers him on the day of struggle. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.